Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. And this portion of our podcast, the Tom Harbin podcast, is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the most comprehensive suite of phone features for business at the lowest price. They've got all kinds of extraordinary features from video and audio conferencing to being able to, you know, create a, a, a complete group of people, some on on desk phones, some's on, some on cell phones. I mean, it's, it, it, you got to check this out. Go to phone.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to save 20%. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. I'm wondering... Before I get into this rant about this amazing new study about the so-called pro-life movement, I'm wondering, what do you do about the racist next door? I mean, Trump has kind of identified this for all of us. He's come out and said that American Jews who are not basically supportive of, I mean, I think the subtext is who are not supportive of Netanyahu's vision of Israel are disloyal. Or at the very least, I mean, you know, to take him literally, that American Jews who vote for Democrats are disloyal to Israel, which is one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes. One of the ways that Jews have been attacked for centuries, probably millennia, is to say essentially, oh, you're not one of us. You have a loyalty to somebody else. This was an attack that was waged against Catholics in the United States in the, in the 19th century. Oh, they're papists. Well, and in, in, in the 18th century, for that matter, probably before that. You have a loyalty to the Pope that surpasses your loyalty to the American government. You can't be a patriot. Well, now Trump has reinvented that. So that's a racist trope and a, and a fairly obvious one. There are others that are far more subtle. But, you know, we hear them. We hear them from our friends and neighbors. And, and how do you respond to this? It seems to me 
And sometimes I even catch myself slipping into those rabbit holes just from having, you know, grown up white in a largely white bubble. There's stuff bouncing around inside there and you become aware of it and you catch it and you go, holy cow, am I really thinking that way or saying that or looking at things that way? Or, you know, how, how can I re-understand this or reimagine it? I don't know if Trump is going to figure out the error of his ways, in this case specifically with regard to Jews and Israel and all that. No idea. But this is not healthy. And so when your neighbor makes some casually racist comment, or even not so casually, how do you respond? Do you say, a lot of people would consider that a racist comment. That's how I would approach it. Or do you engage in battle or what? I'm just asking you if you've got stories you want to tell us, if you, if you have ever had the experience of waking up a racist, you know, feel free to give us a shout. But I wanted to get into this just amazing report. The study was done by Supermajority slash Perry Undem. It's a remarkable survey. And what they did was they asked questions about the role of women in society. And they asked people whether they considered themselves pro-choice or pro-life, right? Whether they're in favor of a woman having a right to have an abortion or whether they're opposed to a woman having the right to have a, a legal, a safe legal abortion. And they asked questions like, you know, should women hold political office? Well, 82% of people who were pro-choice said, yeah, women should hold political office. But 34% of so-called pro-lifers said, yes, women should hold elective office. So, you know, what is that, 66%, if I'm doing my math right, of so-called pro-life people think women should not hold political office. Now, what does that tell you about their views on women? Do men make better political le leaders than women? More than half said, yes, men are better than women at being political leaders. Should we have equal numbers of men and women in positions of power in the United States? 80% of pro-choicers said yes. Fewer than half of pro-lifers said yes. Jill Filipovic wrote a great summary of this in today's Guardian, theguardian.com. And she notes, anti-abortion voters don't like the Me Too movement. They don't think the lack of women in positions of power impacts women's equality. They don't think access to birth control impacts women's equality. They don't think the way women are treated in society is an important issue in the 2020 election. They don't believe sexism is a problem. They're hostile to women's rights. Now, you'll recall, you know, after the 2016 election, everybody was trying to figure out what happened. And, oh, it's got to be that white people voted for Donald Trump because they're economically insecure. And then the social scientists chimed in. They, they got, you know, in and actually did some research and found out it's got nothing to do with economic insecurity. In fact, most of the white people who voted for Donald Trump weren't the really poor ones. They were the more well-off ones. So what was it all about? Well, it was all about basically race. Donald Trump based his campaign on racism and the folks that, who are essentially racists said, uh, yeah, I'm voting for Donald Trump. So then the question became, well, what about the others? Well, maybe they're economically insecure. They're not all racists. It turns out that the rest of them are misogynists. They think that women should basically live their lives under the thumb of men.
the anti-abortion movement was really, you know, fueled. I mean, it was only 150 years ago that the Catholic Church decided abortion was wrong. They were fine with abortion up until 150 years ago, and at least early, early stage. Pre-quickening, which is when you can feel the baby kicking. Um, so, you know, they were fine up to that point. But 150 years ago, they took this position, and then, of course, the evangelicals picked this up in the 1980s with Reagan. But the Catholic Church is arguably the most misogynistic institution in the world. Vatican City has 700 some odd citizens. All of them are men. No woman holds a position of power, of real power in the Catholic Church. No woman is allowed to. You know, the Catholic Church has been driving this anti-abortion train. You know, women, according to three quarters of the people in this survey who were anti-abortion, Women are too easily offended. More than 70% of pro-lifers in the survey agree that women interpret innocent remarks or acts as being sexist. In other words, they're just a touch hysterical and perhaps you can't trust these women. And as I mentioned earlier, 82%, this is from Jill's piece in The, in the Guardian, while 82% of pro-choice respondents said that the country would be better off with more women in political office, just 34% of abortion opponents agreed. So it turns out it's the misogyny. So I guess I need to expand that opening question, you know, how do you deal with the racist next door into how do you deal with the sexist next door? Or your own built-in racism or sexism or other forms of otherism. I was on a conservative talk show this morning for a whole hour before I came in and did this show. And it was fascinating because uh, Sam, the, the host of the show, was trying to find areas of commonality. You know, what a refreshing idea. Where are the areas that we agree I think the show was called The Liberty Corner. I'm sorry, I don't have it printed out right in front of me. And, but the host of the show had come to D.C. maybe, what, three years ago, along with Sheriff Richard Mack, when Richard Mack was on my program. And he's been on the show a number of times. And, you know, we'll have a respectful debate. And Sam thought, well, that's a cool thing. Let's, let's do that on my show. It's going to be interesting to get the feedback from Sam, whether his listeners, because he treated me nicely. Whether his listeners are like, no, we want blood, or whether they're saying, well, no, it's a good idea. Which, you know, raises the question, is it important to keep relationships intact if people are openly misogynistic or openly racist? Are they even people that we want in our lives? Or what do you do when they're literally blood relatives? You know, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, in-laws cousins, nephews, and you're going to have to see them every year at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever it may be. You're going to have to hang out with these folks. How do we preserve relationships and still have debates? I mean, I, Julio Rivera, for example, Julio started coming on the show as kind of a right-wing crank. I mean, that's how I was treating him. And then and then I had brunch with him and a niece of his that he's basically caring for in New York and got to know a little bit about his life. And this guy's a really, he's a human being and, and, and in most dimensions, a really decent human being. But I'm just offended by his politics. 
But I decided, you know, I, I, I can be... I can be friends with somebody that I disagree with. I mean, I grew up with a guy that I disagreed with, my dad. What have you done? How has this worked out in your life? And now that we know that the pro-life movement is actually an anti-woman movement, it's not, you know, because, I mean, there was always that incongruity. Why is it that they're so pro-life, but as soon as the baby's born, they want to deny the, the baby health insurance or health care? You know, starting a business, building a business, running a business is hard enough and scary enough and, and challenging enough. It gets even worse when you don't really know your numbers. And if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have is you end up with a bunch of different business systems. You know, one for sales, one for inventory, one for HR, one for, you know, and, and they conflict with each other and they take too much time and too many resources. So how about this? NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and the control you need to grow your company. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or your phone. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, available over at netsuite.com slash tom, T-H-O-M. That's NetSuite, S-U-I-T-E, netsuite.com slash tom to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It was never about the baby or the fetus or the zygote. It was always about keeping women under control, under the control of men. Welcome back. Donna in Connolly Springs, North Carolina. Hey, Donna, your thoughts? Well, I was in college a few years back. I'm 74 now. I was in college when I was in my 60s. I wrote a paper, and it was really pretty well accepted that in all recorded history, male and female are all born the same way. And nobody in recorded history has ever been born with a knife in their hand, a ring on their finger, or shackles on their ankles. And if you are to believe the Bible, Jesus' greatest commandment is to love one another. That's all i got to say, and thank you for your program. Okay. Thank you, Donna. Janet in Richland Center, Wisconsin. Hey, Janet, what's up? Hi. I go to church in Florida, and most of those are fundamentalists, and I find them very prejudiced against Muslims, like they believe that Palestinians have no right to land at all, that Israel is contending with them. Mm. And then I go to a, a Bible study, and the leader gave me a Ben Carson article where Ben Carson said that Muslims have no right to be in Congress at all. Well, and this comes out of the Bible, this Ishmael thing, who owns uh, the promised land and all that. Right. To me, it's very, very, very troubling, and yet I don't dare face them because this is biblical. This is biblical, so I keep my mouth shut, and I just... Well, slavery is biblical, too. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the, the Bible endorses slavery. The Old Testament never condemns it. Paul in the New Testament said, treat your slaves well. <laughs> I mean, that, that's as close as he got, right? No, and, no. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It really is. Janet, thanks for sharing that story. That's a, it's a remarkable one. Nancy in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Nancy, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Yes, Hi. 
um, the woman that just talked to you hit the spot on what I was going to ask you about keeping your mouth shut. Um, I wanted to know your opinion about, like, when you're out in public and you hear a devout racist or anyone that's that's talking way against what you think or what the mm-hmm. what is, uh, like, politically, um, when uh, I hear someone talking about something that's very, very wrong. I was in McDonald's, and a man that was ordering, he ordered right next to me, and he said to the woman that was taking his order, she just made a, a mistake or something, he said... Now please well, please be careful thing. with your language on the air here. Oh, yes. No, okay. no, no. He walked... He said, it's a good thing you don't belong to a union. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, she didn't know why she was young. And he said, uh, he said, it's a good thing Trump's listening. He, he made a very political statement. Right. And it could have been racist. Or anyway, and, but the point was, I just said, I said, now that's not true. You know, I said that to him. Good on you. <laughs> and one of my friends, again, my friend touched me on the shoulder. Right. And said, now don't get involved. Right. Now, the reason why I applaud your getting involved, Nancy, is because I believe that ideas are contagious. They're as contagious as the flu. And that when people are putting out ideas, destructive ideas, you know, like destroying unions or racist ideas or whatever, that that's contagious. And that when you put out a counter idea, when you simply say, well, that's not true. Unions have, have defended working people for, for a century now. And, and you know, the, the destruction of unions is one of the reasons why this country is in such bad shape or something like that. You're, you're putting out a, a counter virus, essentially, you know, a thought virus. Right. And well, that's kind of what I thought. But then me being someone who does get involved. Yeah, but some I, some of your I, friends maybe are a little more averse to yes, conflict. And, and I thought about and this kind of what that woman was saying. I mean, I hate I don't want to put her down, but that, again, that's I I think of the a movie like I don't know. I assume you're familiar with like Gentleman's Agreement. I don't it's recall having a, seen. Oh, it. well, that's an old old yeah. uh, Gregory Peck. It's like it's like um, Kill Mockingbird. Yeah, but the whole thing about it saying nothing is just as racist as being outwardly racist. Yes. Tolerating it is actually promoting it. Well said, yeah. Nancy. Okay, well, thank, thank you. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Michelle in uh, Julieta, Idaho. Hey, Michelle, what's up? I just wanted to call in because I live in a small town, Julieta, Idaho, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who don't understand gay in my town. Mm-hmm. And 13 years ago, I bought a bar in this small town thinking that I'd have a new life after getting laid off. Mm-hmm. And all of the people were really standoffish with having a lesbian in their small town. Huh, and being as, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they started trying up to say small things to hurt, you know, another person's feelings, right. myself. Right. And I ended up selling the place for a loss as a result of being you know, a lesbian in a small town. And what I wanted to try to say is that as a gay person, we have to try to assimilate into whether you're race or non-racial person. Mm-hmm. And we have to uh, take a look at a person to see if they're even going to like us before we even meet them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though you are racially different than the people in the town, your gender identify or your 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 whatever you want to call it uh you you being gay made you different made you an outsider 
And so you've had that experience. I, I'm wondering right. if there's a, a more common experience that straight people have had that might inform them of what that's like. Probably not, Pro- you know, outside of being bullied in, in school or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, I'm so sorry to hear your story uh, that, that you had to sell the place. Have you, yeah. have you, have you uh, reconciled in any way with any of those people, or did you just walk away and that was the end of it? Um, you end up with some people you just walk away, and with some people you don't. And you yeah. just have to decide that based on how the input comes. Yeah, there you go. Well, Michelle, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Mark in uh, New Carlisle, Indiana. Hey, Mark. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Can you hear me now? Uh, let's try it, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I had a friend I used to go travel with on uh, to swap meets. Uh, we were in model railroading. We did some historical writing about railroading. Mm-hmm. And we're driving down the Dan Ryan Expressway, and he just starts pointing people out who happened to be black motorists cutting in lanes and, and switching lanes, and he came up with a name for it and that. And I was in the passenger seat. I was getting real deterred by it. I was about to tell him to pull the truck over. I walked the rest of the way to wherever I was going to. But he goes, you know, Mark, uh, 85% of these people are worthless. It's ridiculous. What I had to do, I had to disassociate my relationship with the guy. I learned a lot from him, had a lot of good times with him and that. But I just can't deal with that blatant racism anymore. It's interesting, the model railroad community, my dad was part of that community. One of my, my youngest brother is, travels around the country, goes to those things. It's unfortunate that racism even shows up there, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's so unfortunate. So basically, you just had to walk away from this guy. Yeah, just came out of the blue driving down the Dan Ryan Expressway, headed back to Indiana. And he's done it other times, and I disassociate my relationship. Yeah, okay, I get it. Mark, thanks for the story. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Lisa, in Eureka, Montana, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Lisa, what's up? I wanted to talk about uh, my racist neighbor, mm-hmm. um, who happens to now be my husband. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, no, it's a good story. Okay. When I met him and started dating, the N-word was one of his favorites. And I let him know quickly that that just was going to be a deal breaker, and he needed to explain to me what did he mean by that, why did he use it all the time, Make me understand his perspective. And what I figured out in a very short time was he wasn't racist at all. It was a cultural thing. He's been born and raised here. He's never left here. There are no minorities here to speak of. In Montana? In this part of Montana. I'm pretty rural, northwest. They're just not here. He's never been exposed to that personally, face-to-face. And I learned that it was contagious in the water. I think it's in the water. <laughs> well, this is my point earlier. This woman, when she was talking about, you know, speaking up in the McDonald's when the guy made the stupid comment about unions, and she spoke up, and I congratulated her pointing out that ideas are contagious, and bad they, ideas are contagious, and if they're are. not pushed back against, they can cause illness, essentially. These people in this particular area have no exposure to racism. All they know is what they're watching on TV or Facebook or wherever they're getting their information. Um, The good part of it is probably one of the strongest proponents of racial equality today. Unfortunately, he has to be pretty quiet about it because we still live here. And that's not very well tolerated in this community. So I just wanted, I don't think that he's an anomaly. I think that's a, a big thing probably across the country in rural America especially in parts that don't have minorities 
or people of color or, you know, a lot of gays or whatever sure. you know, demographic they decided they didn't like that they've never even really been exposed to. I think it goes on a whole lot more than, than we really are racist. You know what I mean? Yeah, and a lot of this is based in fear rather than hate. And it's very easy to fear that which or those who you have never met. You have no real deep well, you understanding. Know, we're of. eight miles from the Canadian border, and these people up here are absolutely terrified of the Mexicans stealing their jobs. I'm sorry, we are a long ways from the Mexican border. These people don't okay. come to Montana to do anything. Right. So their fear it has been stoked by somebody. I don't know where to get it. Oh, it's Fox it's News and right wing hate radio. People are here. I understand that, but I was trying not to point my finger at them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, it's, this is actually a business model for these guys. Absolutely, yes. And on that note, if you've never read the book White Trash by Nancy Eisenberg, have you ever heard of that book? I have the book at home. A caller recommended it, and then another caller called in and said, you got to read it. And I'm in the middle of writing a book right now, so I haven't had the time to read it, but it's on my it's, stack. It's a fascinating book, Tom, and it talks over the last four centuries of them choreographing exactly where we are today. They've, but they've done this on purpose, and they did it from the beginning. They being who? Book. The white masters of, of the American society. Right. You know, white capitalists essentially the, deciding that this yes, is a way to tear us apart owner. and control us. Slave owner. Yeah, I got it. Lisa, thank Thanks you for that. I, you know, th that's, you're the third person to tell me to read that book, so I'm going to have to get to it. I appreciate it. And thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. You know, some people use CBD oil to deal with aches and pains. Other people use it to help sleep. Other people use it because hey, it's an anti-inflammatory and they know that that's a healthy thing. Louise and I use uh, CBD oil for all of the above and we use New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the best out there. It doesn't get you high. It's made out of hemp, it's, uh, but it is a cannabinoid. This is CBD. It's pure CBD, in fact, or, or damn near pure. And it's great for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. It's non-toxic and potent. The brand I trust most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so it's pure, simple, and legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans by Stanley B. Greenberg. This is from the introduction. This book tells an amazing story, and if you hadn't seen what happened to America over the last four years, you wouldn't believe it. It even has a happy ending that's none too soon for all of those of us who have had enough fighting, division, and enough politics. This time, the end of politics portends a country united and finally liberated from gridlock to address the nation's most serious problems. It ends with the death of the Republican Party as we've known it, while the survivors work to recreate the party of Lincoln, relevant for our times. It ends with the Democratic Party liberated from the nation's suffocating polarization to use government to advance the public good, as the country used to expect. You see, our country is hurtling toward a new America that is ever more racially and culturally diverse, younger, millennial, more secular and unmarried, with fewer traditional families and male breadwinners, more immigrant and foreign-born who are more concentrated in the growing metropolitan areas, 
which are magnets for investment and for people. The New America encompasses a vast array of family types and working families in which both the men and women face growing challenges. The New America is ever more racially blended and multinational, more secular and religiously pluralistic. The New America embraces the country's immigrant and foreign character. It now includes the college-educated and suburban women who want respect and equality in a multicultural America. America was shaped by major social movements, civil unrest, political battles, and government action at historic junctures, and by the choices the two national political parties took that created a more modern America. Each moved America away from traditional strictures on blacks, women, and immigrants. Each juncture made America freer, more equal, and more democratic. Those with the Democratic Party on a trajectory that aligned Democrats with the country's emerging civic norms and alienated the Republican Party from the country and from itself. America was changed profoundly by the battle to pass the civil rights laws that ended racial segregation and ensured blacks had the right to vote. Bipartisan immigration laws reopened the country to non-Anglo-Saxon immigration in 1965 and greatly expanded it in the late 1980s. The Supreme Court put women on a path to greater independence and equality when it declared in 1965 that women have a right to privacy and birth control, and in 1973 when it made abortion legal. And these different choices came to fruition with the election and re-election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president whose activist government produced a Tea Party movement and revolt that accelerated the polarization of the country and made attributes about race and immigration matter as never before. The Tea Party and Donald Trump battled to stop history and stop government. At each juncture, the Democrats were deeply divided, sometimes more than the Republicans. This was true on matters of civil rights, immigration, and abortion. Nonetheless, after these defining social issues were settled in law or by the U.S. Supreme Court, national Democratic leaders embraced and defended the social changes and new freedoms that aligned the party with a modernizing America and its values. After more than five decades of such choices, the Democratic Party is associated with equal rights, equality, gender equality, tolerance, openness to diversity, and more. The Republicans' electoral base was in the South and later in the Appalachian Valley and rural states across the country, so at each juncture they escalated their battle against these national changes. The party's national leaders ignored their own deep divisions and worked inventively to show they were champions of white people during the battle over civil rights and affirmative action. Its leaders scorned the sexual revolution and championed to this day a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal. They were opposed to women breaking free of the patriarchal family and winning equality. They mobilized against illegal immigration in the states and nationally fueled by Patrick Buchanan's three campaigns for president. Newt Gingrich led a revolution in the early 1990s that put the GOP into a total war footing against the Democratic Party, determined to expand the liberal welfare state and marginalize conservatism. But those forces defeated him. The Tea Party led the GOP's life-and-death battle against President Obama and his Affordable Care Act, fueled by Tea Party protests that elevated white racial resentment and hostility to immigrants. Defeating and delegitimizing the President Obama was the last chance to stop the new America from winning. 
Obama's 2008 election, the Wall Street bailout, and the searing battle to pass Obamacare produced the Tea Party revolt and the Tea Party wave election of 2010, the most consequential election of our lifetime. It gave the Tea Party-fueled Republican Party effective control of the U.S. House and Senate, two-thirds of the governorships, and more than 60% of the state legislative chambers, which rushed to radically redraw the legislative and congressional maps to ensure big GOP majorities for a decade. The Tea Party-led GOP pushed the country into fiscal austerity and to deconstruct government to stop Democrats from using government for positive ends or paying off its growing coalition with new entitlements. The book R.I.P. GOP. Mike in Lameda, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's up? On the matter of race prejudice, I just think it's very useful to know that not long ago, all white people were black. They all came out of Africa like all the human race did. That's established genetic fact. Right. And if anybody wants proof of it, look up on a search, Cheddar Man. Cheddar like the cheese. Mm-hmm. And it's a recreation of uh, an individual from 7500 B.C. or thereabouts who lived locally. And they use skeletal remains from a cave in Cheddar Gorge to Right. Uh, but where, where, that, where that simple reality becomes toxic, Mike, is that, I mean, that, that is a biological evolutionary response to environment, to, you know, as, as humans moved farther and farther north, where there was less and less sunlight, they basically, as a survival skill, in order to have enough vitamin D to have strong bones, reduced the amount of melanin pigment in their skin so that their skin could more efficiently absorb sunlight and produce vitamin D. I mean, that's the simple equation to this. But what the white races have done is have said, because there was an evolutionary process in there, white people are more evolved, which is complete BS. If you're talking about things like intellect or anything else, you know, the only difference is pigment of skin. But, you know, this has been turned into, I mean, be very careful with that argument. Because that's the that's the same argument that David Duke is making. Well, you can uh, say that the moon is green cheese, and you know doesn't make it so. No, yeah, I get it. Doesn't make it so. Yeah, I get it. And uh, there's a also a picture of this guy's direct descendant who lives in the same area, and they place the two side by side. Of course, with a skeleton, they can recreate the face to a high degree of confidence, and it looks like essentially the same person. Just one has pink skin, and one has black skin. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Bill in Sun City, Arizona. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Years ago, I worked at a facility for court place delinquent boys. And as was my habit, I sat down to dinner with the boys rather than the staff at night. And one night in the conversation, I guess I said something that one of the kids turned to me and said, Oh, Bill, you don't know. You're not black. I thought about that for a moment, and I said to him, you're right. I don't know that I'm not black. I know that there's quite a bit of Italian in me, just like you know there's quite a bit of African in you. But our ancestors sailed the seas. Who's to say they didn't meet in the middle or on each other's shores and become amorous and produce offspring? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm not black, and you don't know that you're not white. After millennials on this planet mixing together, racism is really stupid. If these racist people that, you know, that act out, if they went for a blood test, how many of them would fail the one drop rule? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. 
Yeah, and 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 these are these are the uh, the bizarre redefinitions of humanity that that are being used basically to pit one human being against another human being, principally for the economic benefit or the power benefit, and typically they're the same thing, of a very small group of largely white people. So we've been uh, talking about, uh, you know, a variety of things this morning. How do you deal with racist, homophobe, sexists in your life? And the, the thing that started me on this was this remarkable survey, Jill Filipovic, uh, writing about it over at The Guardian, that the anti-abortion folks have been saying since the 70s, basically almost 50 years, uh, the anti-abortion folks have been saying, we're all about life. We're all about supporting and sustaining life. And then you ask them, okay, well, you know, the most vulnerable time in a child's life is the first couple of years after they're born. Are you in favor of government subsidies or support for those children? Do you think that we should have a national health care system that covers all children when they're born? They'll say, no, 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 no. And that's not, you know, some of them will say, others will say yes, but they're not universally consistent. In fact, a lot of so-called pro-lifers are in favor of the death penalty. This study was done, and it's a, it's a fascinating poll, and you can read the whole thing over at theguardian.com, where they asked uh, a bunch of questions that, actually, that elicit a person's perspective on the role of women in society. Should women have political power in society? Should women have economic power in society? Should women be leaders? Do men make better leaders than women, or vice versa? What do you think about the Me Too movement? Does access to birth control impact women's equality? Do you want equal numbers of men and women in positions of power in the United States? And what they found was that by margins as high as 60 to 80 percent, you know, of the so-called pro-lifers held basically misogynistic, anti-woman worldviews. They thought that men are better political leaders. They thought that there should not be equal numbers of men and women in, in, in political power. And by the way, you look at the Republican Party and you look at how many women are in the Senate and the House of Representatives or in any of your state legislatures. And, you know, women and people of color, very few and far between. Fewer than half of abortion opponents said that there should be equal numbers of men and women in Congress, whereas 80 percent of pro-choice People say, yes, of course. I mean, it's, it, it's really pretty remarkable. And, and you know, the, you, they talk about the Catholic Church driving much of this. The Catholic Church is probably one of the most misogynistic institutions around. They will not allow women to have power. 82% of pro-choice respondents said the country would be better off with more women in political office. Only 34% of so-called pro-lifers agreed. And this is, this is why they say, oh, we care about life, but we're going to support a president who puts children in cages. We're going to cut aid to needy children and health care to poor mothers and pregnant women. We oppose contraception and sex education, even though these are the most effective ways to reduce the number of abortions. They're not actually, actually opposed to abortion. They're opposed to women having agency, having power over their own bodies. 
and the political power and the economic power associated with that. So when you confront people in your life, whether they're relatives or coworkers or friends or neighbors or whatever they may be, how do you talk them off that ledge? How do you bring them back to some kind of sanity? How do you wake them up out of the, the racist soup? I mean, it's just so lazy for white people who are in, encountering economic challenges in their lives or any other kind of challenge to simply blame it on people of color or blame it on women in the workforce. It is lazy, but it's done constantly. And it, and it, and it turns out the whole pro-life movement is not really about life at all. It's about controlling women. So what do you say to people who, who are proponents of this point of view? And how can we reconcile this stuff as a society? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. This is the home of the political revolution, the place where despair is not an option. So, you know, I listen to podcasts before, in bed, actually, is where I listen to most of my podcasts. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast in bed, think about your bed. Is it supporting your sleep? Is it supporting your sleep by regulating the temperature of your immediate environment, that is to say your bed? This incredible new bed, the Pod by 8 Sleep, is the ultimate sleep machine. It's the first and only high-tech bed designed to give you a peak mind and body performance and help you sleep deeper, longer, better, and give you intel on your sleep. Uh, they even have personalized programs and coaching ex designed by experts to help guide you toward true sleep fitness. Because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup, which is a big deal with a big investment like a, a mattress. Only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. Uh, they, they've already sold out their first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, you can get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. It's time for Congressman Mark Bocan taking your calls. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at repmarkpocan. And Congressman, uh, what's on your mind this morning? Oh, boy. Uh, the president's been on a Twitter roll again, uh, not just today, the last few days, from craziness of not meeting with the leadership of Denmark because they won't sell him Greenland, to him calling Jewish voters disloyal if they don't support him and his political party, to him caving to the NRA again on background checks. Well, he's implied, actually, that they're disloyal if they don't support Israel in the indirect well, path through him. Exactly. And that's one this of the that, oldest anti-Semitic tropes out there. Exactly. It's the dual loyalty sort of language he's using. And for a guy who said he has all the best words, he just doesn't know how to use them, clearly. Apparently, yeah. yeah, it's nuts. Just an FYI, Donald mm -hmm. Trump did his little uh, press scrum on the White House lawn as he was running to his helicopter to fly someplace. And somebody asked him about China, and he looked up at the sky and said, I am the chosen one. Yeah, and then he retweeted someone who said he's the king of the Jews. Exactly, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, and, yeah, it's, uh, it's getting weird out there. I can't imagine what it's like to be a Republican congressperson or senator in your district trying to explain 
him on a daily basis. I mean, I can explain that's just crazy, and I can say that. But what does you know uh, what does Kevin McCarthy do when he goes back to California? How does he actually explain this away? Yeah. Well, I think that his constituents, his Republican constituents, the you know wealthy white men. By and large, as long as they get their tax cuts, as long as they get you know brown people trashed, yeah. as long as they get some you know reassurance that the social order is going to be maintained, they're just fine with it. I I think. So, shall we pick up phone calls? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go for a Jim in Los Angeles. Hey, Jim, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom, and Congressman. Why can't you introduce a law where every congressman or lawmakers can go into every one of these detention centers any time with no warning, go in with camera crews, doctors and nurses? They are guilty of kidnapping and torture and negligent homicide. Please introduce a bill so you can go see what the situation is. Yeah, Jim, actually, that's already been done. We put it as an amendment in the appropriations process that we should be able to go without any notice. Right now, I think we have to give a certain amount of notice, and even then, in some cases, they can turn you down. And I believe a separate piece of legislation was introduced by Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So, already done, Jim. We've put it in a bill that's moving forward, that in a must-pass bill, so there's a chance we can get that in agreement with the Senate. And I completely agree with you. There's no reason that we shouldn't know what's happening with our taxpayer dollars in these facilities. Isn't it amazing? Republicans do any little thing in the whole, the entire country knows about it, or at least any little thing that yeah. might reflect well on them. Democrats do all kinds of cool stuff, and nobody knows anything about it because the media is only interested in horse races and the politics of personality, essentially, rather than policy. I, it just boggles my mind. Exactly. And, you know, this all started about a year ago when we had some turndowns uh, that happened, I believe, in Florida. We were sitting in the Appropriations Committee. I'm sitting next to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I mentioned something. We did an amendment, put it in last year's version. This year, we're in charge. We put it in the version for sure it's there with, I think this time it is no notice whatsoever. I think before we might have mm-hmm. had 24-hour notice. I think it has a real chance this time because we're in the majority. But again, none of that ever gets covered by the mainstream media. But we do know plenty about Denmark. Yeah. And <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. The, the stuff that's not so consequential. Jim in New Berlin, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Well, hi there. I got a question for you. I can understand why people say that a single-payer system would for lots of people who get insurance through their companies because they would lose their plans and then they would have to pay for a government plan. Why hasn't anybody suggested that employers be required to take the money that they're currently spending for insurance, add it to their salaries, and thereby they get a raise, and since the new insurance should be better and cheaper, they actually get a raise, but the company is paying the same amount of money. Yeah, Jim, I think it's even simpler than that. I've actually heard this on MSNBC and been a bit surprised at how ignorant some of the hosts have been of this issue. For one, we think there's a lot of cost savings by getting rid of the profit, the administration, some of the other areas that will clearly provide that savings. But to a small business owner... If they're not paying for it under the current employer-based model, that money will go to higher pay, hiring more employees, buying new equipment to make the business go better. And for any union, for example, and this is where I heard it just yesterday on MSNBC, said incorrectly, yes, you know, part of your benefit package is your negotiated health insurance, but if you would now have a system, a single-payer system in the United States, you clearly would renegotiate for additional pay, and they clearly would have money to do that. So to say somehow you're giving something up because everyone would now have health insurance is one of the most ridiculous arguments I've heard, and yet I heard it, I believe, twice yesterday while driving
driving around my state in my car listening to MSNBC. So it's just a clear point that needs to be driven home that it is not saying you're going to you lose your health insurance, therefore you get nothing extra. Quite the opposite. That employer now has more money, and you can bargain for better pay, and you can do a lot of things. Yeah, MSNBC, particularly their morning programming, has become basically the voice of neoliberalism. It's, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. David in Buffalo, New York, you're on the air. With Congressman oh, hello, Congressman Polkan and Tom. Thank you. The uh, nuclear radiation detectors in Russia after the explosion uh, were shut down. And I'm under the impression that in the Northwest and Midwest, we had nuclear radiation detectors, but they have been let to go quiet. Some were battery-operated, some were generated in other ways or powered, but they no longer work. The majority of them, and this information came out... Of, at least eight years ago. And I was wondering, are you aware of this? Is this true? And if it is true, when might we hear something about a resolution to that? Because it seems to be a concern. David, are you talking about the detectors that were turned off after Fukushima? No, the missile that was exploded in Russia. Right, their radiation detectors have been turned off. Okay, yeah, let's, let's get that. I was talking about ours in the United States. Right. Uh, we have yeah. uh, sensors in the northwest and west that have been allowed to go quiet over time. Okay, let's ask like Congressman. The, uh, you've already said that. Congressman Pocan? Yeah, David, I haven't heard anything about that directly, so I, I couldn't speak to it. I can tell you this, though. There is a foundation based actually in Madison, Wisconsin, a national foundation, former Ambassador Tom Loftus is involved with it. He was an ambassador to Norway, former Speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly, and their whole focus is to deal with ridding the world of nuclear arms. And I just sat down with them, I believe it was last week, and we talked about this situation. It was right after it happened, and uh, by all of their standards, and they have a lot of knowledge in this area, they think there's a whole lot more information that is going to come out about this, and I'm very intrigued by that. Let's see here, Michael in Duerte, California. Is that right, Michael? That's Duarte, California. Duarte. Uh, okay, you're on the air yeah, with Congressman Duarte, Pope. Duarte, just a suburb of L.A., about 20 miles southeast of Los Angeles downtown. Okay. I'm really concerned, Tom. I'm really concerned about the impeachment proceedings. We must impeach. I just read that Lichtman, the man who predicted the last nine elections, has said that we are gone. The Democrats are gone if we do not impeach. It is very important that we impeach. And I would like to ask the congressman and you, what are the chances of this? And why are the Democrats dragging their feet so much? And do you think we'll eventually get there to the impeachment, which is a must, in my opinion, a must? Congressman. Yeah, Michael, so a few things. One, um, you know, impeachment's going to take votes from both parties, so that is a reality we all have to recognize, and I don't think we're there yet. I can tell you this. I do think the impeachment investigation slash inquiry has begun. I think uh, we are in a semantical jumble game as Democrats, unfortunately. I, don't th I think we've handled it very poorly in how we talk about this, but very clearly what Judiciary Committee is up to under Jerry Nadler is launching the investigation, trying to get more court support to compel witnesses to come so that you can have the information to then put forward to try to gain the Republican vote. So whether or not that ultimately will get Republican votes for impeachment, uh, I think is still a question mark. I don't think that we've done an especially good job on the semantics of what we're talking about, but I do believe we are in that process right now to try to compel witnesses with what most of us would call an impeachment inquiry. I think we're having a semantical problem saying it from our leadership, but I do believe that's where we're at. When you say Republican votes, I assume you're talking about the Senate? Yes, exactly. Okay. And what if the House, I mean, you're familiar with the Reagan Legacy Project, right? Yes. And there's been leaks out of the White House that Trump's 
trying to do the exact opposite to Obama. He's trying to erase any record of Obama having any accomplishments from the historical record. So people will look back on the Obama presidency as a complete failure. So in that historical context, what if the House was to impeach Trump and then not even bother referring it to the Senate, simply have it a stain on his record for all time? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's an option. But I do think the biggest thing we've been saying is, and rightfully so, to get the votes I think we need, even from all the Democrats, is we need to compel some of these witnesses. I mean, Don McGahn sure. coming and saying that he was clearly instructed to fire Robert Mueller after Donald Trump has said he's tweeted that he didn't tell him that, is powerful, and we need that information. So we do need to crank up what we're doing to the impeachment inquiry level. I do think it was very sloppily done by our leadership, because now I think the term we're using is investigation and why we're lost in semantics. I am lost on a rationale for that. Right. But I do think we need to have some of those witnesses come and say some things to get us closer to any next step. Yeah, and that being lost in semantics puts us at risk if the Supreme Court says, no, this isn't a real impeachment inquiry. I agree, Tom. I tell you, when I had to leave and I was confused before we came back for the August break, I think how much everyone else must be confused. Yeah. And I uh, serve there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, if anybody should know, it should be you. I would hope. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, one of the big cheese progressives in the U.S. House of Representatives, well, in all of Congress, actually, for that matter, is on the line taking your calls. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan. So we just put up a new video. It's over at TomHartman.com, or the links to it are over at TomHartman.com. And basically what I was talking about in it is starting with the old saying from the late 60s, early 70s, what if they gave a war and no one came? What if a bunch of right-wing thugs showed up itching for a fight and were completely ignored? Historically, one of the most powerful ways to put someone down, essentially, is to shun them. In fact, you know, expelling people from communities among indigenous people is one of the worst punishments that there was. You turn your back on a dog when it's misbehaving and it immediately gets that it's being shunned. We just need to shun these right-wingers. So that's where we need to start. So anyhow, you can check out the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. And uh, thanks so much for supporting our program. We really do appreciate it. <laughs> it's it's Congressman Mark Pocan. Now, I've got a couple of set pieces here that just, you know, kind of drop into autopilot. No problem. There you go. Thank you. Let's see here. Henry in Atwater, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, this is Henry. I'm calling about how we would go about paying for a single-payer medical insurance system. This was actually studied in 2005 in California by an industry group called the Lewin Group, found that a, I believe, a 12% tax would cover everything. Kind of the short story in this, I was at that time paying $14,000 a year for my coverage through my employer. Under the single-payer system, my total cost would be about $6,500. Full coverage, dental, vision, the whole works, right? No deductibles, no coinsurance. So single-payer is absolutely more cost-effective than the so-called system we have. Again, people should look up the Lewin Group analysis. There's two of them, a 10-page 
executive summary and then the full 116-page report. But they're really great. Got it, Eric. Got it. Let's let's let Congressman Pocan respond. Thank you. Yeah, Henry and I and I would argue I've seen a lot of other ones that are even better. I think that show uh, where savings are and why the cost isn't that much. But I think one thing you said I really want to drill home because people often forget about is you wouldn't have deductibles. It's right away if you think of everyone right now who's on the Affordable Care Act with a five thousand dollar deductible, which is a lot of people, especially of lower income, uh, that's kind of cost prohibitive. If you got rid of deductibles for people and copays, which you would have you already are going to be way ahead on a single-payer system. So there's a lot of financial reasons that make it good sense, and yet you're going to see Republicans continue to throw some $32 trillion or whatever fake figure they try to put out there and make it sound like everyone's going to be taxed more. Simply not true. Rick, in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing today? Good, good Rick. How are you? Good. Listen, i got a question for you. For the last couple of years, news reports have revealed that Mitch McConnell has refused to participate with President Obama to investigate Russia meddling in the 2016 election. They refused to bring up legislation involving election security for the 2020 elections. He's established a partnership with Russia regarding an aluminum plant in his state, and his personal wealth has increased by several millions of dollars over his tenure. My question is, can he be brought before the House Intelligence Committee to be asked questions regarding the issues I just mentioned, number one. And number two, do you think it would be beneficial if we could do it? So a couple thoughts, Rick. One, I mean, I think the Senate would likely deal with anything. Um, but I think a few of the things you put out there are a little bit circumstantial, right? Like you're, you're making a jump, a big jump, that his wealth increased, as unfortunately uh, do many folks who serve in the House and Senate, and then the connection to Russia, right? And I think that there's you need a few more connectors to really make that case. I do think that he has done everything in his power to stop us from trying to protect our elections from Russian interference, and that is absolutely significant why he's got the nickname Moscow Mitch is because of that. And I think the fact that this this company has got this big investment in his home state also probably has some influences on his decision-making. But I think to try to connect all those dots might be a little loose uh, at this point, but we certainly should hold him accountable for doing nothing to protect our elections and, you know, uh, certainly raise the question, is it because uh, there's connection to his home state? Uh, What could the connections be? And I think ultimately he's going to have to answer if he refuses to do anything to protect our elections in our country. Mary, in Auray, Colorado, O-U-R-A-Y? Yes, Uray, Colorado. Okay, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. I know there's several millionaires in the, in the race, and I know there's others out there that would support the Democratic Party. Why don't they use their money instead of running for office to go ahead and help uh, blue states that where there's problems with their voting machines to help them get maybe like paper ballots or definite good voting things. It seems like their money could be better used with that than to be running for president. I know there's areas in the purple states where they could use that kind of thing, and I don't think we're going to get it from the federal government in time. Congressman? Mary, it's an interesting question you pose, and I pose it often and a little bit differently. I think Buttigieg, for example, Mayor Buttigieg raised $25 million in the last reporting period, and I look at $25 million if that was spent in 10 key congressional races, how we could protect the majority or how you use that maybe in a couple Senate races and how you'd pick up the majority, and that's just a quarter worth of fundraising for one or if it was used to, Or if it was used to buy a half a dozen radio stations. 
or a half a dozen radio. I mean, go down the list, right? I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mark. I'm wondering, how long are we going to let this uh, pumpkin head in office perjure himself? He's under oath as the highest office in the nation to preserve, protect, and defend us. How come when there's no equal voice of the Democratic Party on television and radio, how come he gets to spew his lies over and over again, and we never get the opportunity to respond? Thank you. I'll listen to your response. Yes, Stephen, I mean, you're right. All too often, you know, because he says such crazy outlandish things, he gets lots of press, but we don't necessarily have a Democratic, you know, candidate right now for president that would be the normal person getting equal response, so to speak. I think Nancy Pelosi gets probably the most, Chuck Schumer very close second, but still it's not the same, and it's not the same balance, and Donald Trump continues to say all kinds of crazy things, and you just don't see that in the mainstream media. It's one of the problems we have. Tom and I just talked at the top of the program how, you know, we've done a lot of really great things, and we've sent over all these great bills that Mitch McConnell's buried in someone's backyard in Kentucky, and yet we very rarely get the mainstream media to pick that up. They just want to talk about Denmark or, you know, whatever new crazy thing the president says. All right. Heather in Lansing, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. I have a quick question, kind of. In regard to the impeachment, do we even have time to go through that process and see it to fruition before the next election? And if we don't, how do we get the popular vote to make a difference? Because we obviously didn't elect the president popularly. So the electoral college got in the way. What do we even do if we can't impeach him before he potentially gets reelected? Yeah, well, so the first question, for all you know, Don McGahn could come out and say, absolutely, I was told to fire him, and he lied. That might be enough, right? If you had something as simple as that, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's part of why we're doing the process in order to get witnesses to come that he's trying not to have come, because if they tell the truth, uh, there will be damning evidence in there that looks like obstruction by the president. That's the first answer. Second answer is, you know, still it's the electoral process. Uh, by putting more of this information out there, hopefully people will realize that it's not in the national best interest to have Donald Trump president. You know, we had a lot of Democrats stay home, 200 to 250,000 in Wisconsin last presidential election, and Donald Trump won my state by 23,000. Um, we can't let that happen again. If we would have had turnout, he wouldn't have won Wisconsin, he wouldn't have won Michigan, and he wouldn't have won Pennsylvania, and the popular vote would have actually elected the president. So we just have to take that issue separate from impeachment and do everything we can to make sure people are getting out to vote and be heard. And I would just recommend all your listeners Again, to remember, your members of Congress and the Senate are home in August. This is your best chance to try to get them face-to-face or get them at events and make sure you're being heard. Let them know what you think and ask your questions because uh, this is the best opportunity you're going to have all year. There you go. Congressman Mark Pocan, thanks so much for being with us, Congressman. Yeah, of course, Tom. Thank you, as always. Great talking. And ha- have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Congressman Pocan's website, by the way, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.